0: We're going to finish up our series on the Apostle Paul today. And I, I, in theory, this is going to be a short sermon. We'll see how that works. Um, but Paul, basically, he had, he had three major missionary trips. And, and then after his third missionary trip, he, uh, he basically gets arrested. And he goes into this season. It's basically, there's a major shift. Uh, from his missionary role and his traveling role and his his ability to start churches become the apostle that God's called him to be like he is he is by far the entrepreneur of all spiritual entrepreneurs the amount of churches that he started and the impact that they had and then there, there seems to be a little bit of a shift and it's almost as if God was in it there was a shift in in his role and a shift in his identity and he 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 takes on this really weird role of being arrested, and being an influence within jail, within the prison system, within under under conflict, under persecution, and we see a huge amount of persecution in Paul's life, and it, it's just, it's it's baffling that he held to his faith, that he held he held, you know he he stayed strong in the midst of some of the worst persecution and torture that you could possibly think of and during the whole time he was positive he was extremely positive some of the best literature in the world we call them the prison epistles it's Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians those the, the, he actually wrote those he wrote Philippians in jail and it is just Philippians is known as the book of joy And we're pretty certain that he wrote this in the Mamertine prison, probably chained around a pillar, without a bathroom, quite possibly for a year or two. And in this, he was able to dictate the book of joy. Like, how do you do this? In the midst of, of your worst situations, how do you maintain an atmosphere or how do you keep your heart soft towards people? When everything is working against you, when you're tired, when you're beat up, when you're mentally and physically exhausted, how do you maintain a positive atmosphere in your life when everything has been taken from you? And Paul teaches us some very specific secrets on how to do it. And there's a mindset. Today we're going to close our series on Paul's mindset. He he had this ability just to to just be dogged in his beliefs um, in his in his journey there's there's even we see he changes and he grows a little bit in the in the in the epistles do um, we got some people that were saved in the seventies eighties yeah, some of you here um, Did you think Jesus was coming back? yeah. Like there was like almost this conviction. Like we led this Bible study, and that's all we talked about. And when I was a teenager, is when is Jesus coming back? We had I mean, there was one guy that had it all plotted out. He had it all boiled down to the date, and it was like it was going. It was like you know, coming soon, right? And we always we, we have this tendency to predict when Jesus is coming back. Uh, when <laughs> you know you're watching the news, watching the news lately. Right? Come on. It could happen, or it could not. I don't know, but it just everything seems a little a little tense. And like my grandfather, who was a preacher, he was convinced, 100% convinced, that Jesus was coming back within his lifetime, because he was at Adolf Eichmann's trial, and he saw the nation of Israel restored back to God's people, and you know. The, the, the prophecy is when that generation uh, goes away, then Jesus is coming back. So he was in that generation. He was convinced that the Lord was coming back. And Paul had that same conviction, but we see him change and we see him grow a little bit. Once where he was 100% convinced in his writings that Jesus was going to return within his lifetime, near the end of Paul's life, he changes his opinion about that. Isn't that interesting? He says, I'm ready to go. It is better for me to uh, be with you but i prefer to be with the lord these are the types of comments paul makes so he begins to even mature and change in his own beliefs over the period over your spiritual walk have you changed in some of your beliefs like there's certain beliefs that we should that are unwavering right paul was never never compromised on the gospel he never compromised on the gospel of grace, on what Jesus did for us. That has always been his main message. But we see him accept and embrace more of God's grace. He's like, yeah, well, you know what? Maybe Jesus isn't coming back, and that's okay. Get okay, ready for this. I am still faithful. Some of these people have got the prediction of when Jesus is coming back, and he doesn't come back. They have a crisis of faith. It's an interesting dilemma. But Paul never had this crisis of faith. He was steady and he was true. All right, get your Bibles out and we're going to be looking in the book of Acts initially. And In Acts 20, it reads a lot like Hemingway or something like that. It's amazing. Paul is ending his third missionary trip. There's there's a shift in what he does, and this, is, this begins the shift. This is basically the end of him doing church life. He's going to be moving into doing prison life. Shortly after this incident happens, he winds up in Jerusalem, and they... They almost kill him in Jerusalem. It's very reminiscent of what happened to Jesus. He's facing off against the Sanhedrin, which is basically the Jewish court system. He is, he's arguing with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees were the conservatives. The Sadducees are the liberals. Yes, they had those in ancient times. And both of them, both the conservatives and the liberals, hated Paul. They hated him and they both wanted to kill him. And Paul's a genius because he puts them off against each other. He says, you know what? I believe in the resurrection of the body. And the Pharisees are like, hey, I believe in that too. And then the Sadducees who don't believe in the resurrection of the body, they don't believe in life after death. They get into this big argument and Paul is able to slip out. He's a genius. This is how Paul's mind works in amazing ways. And so Paul gets arrested in Jerusalem. And here's the irony. The Romans save him. They save him from being destroyed and killed by religious people, of all things. And they make a plea to Caesar himself. And then Paul takes this prison journey from where he's at and uh, from Jerusalem. He's arrested for basically the rest of his life, probably a good four years or longer maybe. And he eventually winds up in Rome. But this is the story that happens before he gets himself arrested in Jerusalem. Uh, chapter 20, verse, um, verse 17. Paul sent to, the, to Ephesus for the elders of the church. Ephesus, he uh, had a big giant showdown in Ephesus. Because this is why Paul gets beat up all the time. Because he's challenging the status quo. And the status quo of Ephesus was not just the worship of a goddess, it was also an entire economy, because they were worshiping this, you know, this incredible goddess, and Ephesus was the most beautiful temple of its time, it was basically Disneyland on steroids, and people were making a lot of money selling little silver statues of the goddess. And he's able to basically undermine that entire economy with the gospel. Okay. He sent for the elders of of Ephesus. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you? From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears. Although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but I have taught you publicly from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. So everything that Paul gets called into, the Holy Spirit has warned him that there's going to be hardship in it. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the lord jesus has given me the task of testing the gospel of god's grace isn't that something this is the mindset this is the mindset that i want to get into he is he is seeing into the future he's got himself a goal he is if you will he's a competitor and we say that, there's, that there shouldn't be, we say, I don't know who we are, but we say, maybe you've heard this, but we say that there shouldn't be competition within the church. Would you agree with that? Like, I mean, I, I, it's, it's a truth. It's a truth when it applies to people that are selfish and have selfish ambitions, like Tearing somebody else down in order for you to get ahead is not the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. Not in church, and even not in your workplace, and not at school. If you secretly desire that promotion, and if in your imagination you're like, you know how I can get that promotion? If the guy that's ahead of me or the gal that's ahead of me, if they blow it. And so secretly, deep down inside, you're wishing they're ill. You're wishing that they trip or, or mess up or fall. This is a part of our human nature. It's actually a dangerous thought process that we have. It's toxic. It's not a good form of competition. To actually want and desire the downfall of another person is its not how God created you. We live in a very interesting time, where we see people in authority, and I, I you know, I, I do this too. It's like you, you, we we see success, and we want to align ourselves with successful people, but then we we want, like deep down inside, we secretly desire their destruction. We're like, I, I just can't wait until they fall, right? Is it, Do you see what I'm saying? You just secretly think that you know they're gonna blow it someday. Um, I mean, I want to address this. I think we should. How many people are familiar with Pastor Bill Hybels? I mean, seriously, let me, give a, let me, let me just test the church and get a raise of hands. All right, not that many of you. Okay, that's good. Uh, Bill Hybels is probably one of the most influential pastors in America. His, his congregation is 26,000 on a weekend. So that many people show up to his church on a weekend. 26,000. So this is considered a small group for his church. And he has dedica- he, he built the church from scratch out of a youth group. God blessed it. Uh, God promoted it. He even dedicated his time and energy into training other churches. So a lot of the material that we use for our church, we have gotten from Bill Heibel's organization, Willow Creek Association. And here's the the sad part, is, all right, remember uh, in October when the Me Too thing went down and I I told everybody, this is our position on Me Too, like, it ain't okay to act poorly. It's just not okay. And so I I just kind of said, look, this this is where we're at as a church. And then, I don't know if this, is, if this is a prophecy or if this is just common sense, but I said, mark my words, there's going to be a man of authority inside of the church that's going to go down because of this. And it's a good thing. And this is what happened to Bill Hybels. He was accused of sexual misconduct within his church. And it looked like it was been going on for years. Now, it's still difficult to judge because um, he's claiming that he's innocent. And so we have to give them that benefit of the doubt. Uh, And I think that the church, as far as his church, is going through the process in the right way, and the community that is around them is going through it in the right way. They're trying to get to truth. If he is guilty, he definitely needs to be held accountable for his actions. But here's the interesting thing that we see in the human nature everybody's eating it up. It's like juicy bits of gossip. It's like deep down inside, they're really happy that the guy fell. I'm not. I remember when Jimmy Swaggart blew it. And I think that my initial reaction was a lot like everybody else's. I knew that guy was slimy, right? And then the Holy Spirit convicted my heart. And he said, because Jimmy Swagger did it, don't get me wrong. I'm not making excuses for the guy. But it is not my or anybody else's position to cast judgment on that or to even malign them or to even tear them down or to even say things that we don't know anything about. The Bible has a word for that, and it's called gossip. If you're not a part of the solution, and if you're not a part of the problem, then it's gossip. So what does that say about our social media platforms when we become an authority on somebody that we don't even know? And we're not even involved in any part of their lives. We have no idea what is actually going on. And yet, from afar, from our little safe place, we're able to cast judgment. And so this is what we're seeing going on. You know, it's just, and then people are making stuff up, of course. That happens. Regardless, um, my own personal opinion like this Me Too thing, it's a good thing. It's good for our society and it's good for our churches. Or there'll be extremes, I'm sure there will, but we'll all course correct. But it's going to be really, really good for our churches. And so. We need to embrace the character of Christ that says, you know what, we're just not going to act in certain ways. We've been called to a higher standard. And it's not just me, folks. It's not. Remember what I preached last week? I preached the priesthood of all believers. Hmm? The priesthood of all believers. I get the title. So am I held to a higher standard? Of course I am. But so are you. And you've got to watch it just as well as I do. So anyway, that's. Um. All right, let's continue. Uh, verse 25. Now I, have, uh, now, now I know none of you among you uh, whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Okay, so this is beginning to become very personal. This is a very personal and uh, intense story for Paul. He's, this is a church that he started, a church that he planted, and now he's saying, I know that you're never going to see me again. So he's got that much insight into his life. He says, I'm going to finish this race. I'm going to fight this thing to the very end. I'm not going to give up, and unfortunately, you're probably never going to see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that i am innocent of the blood of all men. It's an interesting statement because we think that he might have killed people. For i have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of god. Keep watch over yourselves and the flock of which the holy spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of god which you which he bought with you by his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Now, there's actually, we actually know what these wolves are. They're not literal world wolves. These are symbolic wolves. And there's two. Um, the scholars are clear on what these two wolves are. I don't have time to get into explaining how they came up with this. But here are the wolves. One there's going to be savage wolves released against the church from external influences. Specifically, this this is spiritual that we're talking about here. So there's going to be a spiritual attack on the integrity of the gospel from outside of the church. All right, let's see. Who should I pick on? All right, this one's safe. I won't offend anybody here. It's amazing how I can offend people with even the littlest stuff these days. Can we go after New Age? Alright, let's go after New Age. So New Age is a wolf. New Age comes in and it steals language from Christianity. ease is very easy to rip off. Hmm? And so this external wolf comes in and says, Uh, You know what? All religions are good. All roads lead to heaven. Uh, There are many paths to the top of Mount Fuji. And the church begins to buy it, and it begins to weaken, and it begins to water down the gospel truth of who we are. So that's one of the wolves. The other wolf is internal. This is why when I preached last week on loving one another, the church is famous the, the, the church that Paul is talking to in Rome, they are, abs- they are famous, they are known for their faith. He says, wow, you guys are amazing, because your reputation has is, is gone before you. You are known for being a people of faith. And there's other churches that he talks to, he's like, wow, you guys are amazing. You guys are known for your love. And this needs to be the attitude of the church, like, like those two things. You could actually say three. I think think we could throw hope in there too, right? So faith, hope, and love. This is what we need to be known for as a church. How are we loving our community? How are we loving our spouses? How are we keeping this thing together? Are we loving one another? When you come to church, is it just for your own needs? Are you considering the needs of others? What are we famous for? And one of the wolves that attacks that is internal and it does manifest itself into, I don't know, negativity, competition, gossip, backbiting, comparing yourself to other people. There's a number of ways that the, that the internal wolf comes in. Uh, we also call that the spirit of Absalom. Absalom was the, he was, he was David's son. He was the anointed man's son who uh, sat, he wouldn't come into the actual church service. He would sit outside, and as people were coming into the temple to worship God, he'd grab them by the arm and says, you know what, let, let me, let's talk. And then he would begin to feed them those juicy bits of gossip, whether they're true or they're not true. And the, the main strategy was to keep God's people from, enter, to in, from entering into God's presence. That was the main, that, that's actually the main strategy of the enemy, he wants to keep you and your family quite simply from doing this. And there's going to be a lot of temptation. There's going to be a lot of things that are saying, you know what? You don't need to do church. You don't need to do, be in fellowship. You don't need to read your Bible. You don't need to pray. It doesn't work. There's going to be these, these types of voices are going to be in your head. They're going to be, they're going to be you know, wanting you to think and act a certain way. All right, now let's skip down to Verse 36. He is now saying goodbye to the the Ephesians on the shore. And when he said this, he knelt down with with all of them, and he prayed, and they all wept as they embraced him and as they kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. And I don't know why there's a chapter heading here. It doesn't belong. Anyway, keep going to chapter 21. After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to the sea and sailed straight to Kos. Now, do you see how personal and intimate this letter is? Paul is leaving them, and they're weeping, and they're crying, and they're literally having to tear themselves away. There's a shift. Again, there's a shift in Paul's ministry. And let's turn now to Timothy. Second Timothy. Chapter two. This is many years down the line. This is years and years after he's he's had this shift in his career. This is years after he's left the Ephesians. He has gone from being in apostle mode, missionary mode, and now he's just basically in full-blown prison mode. And First uh, and Second Timothy and Titus are what we call the pastoral epistles, meaning that they were written specifically to instruct uh, people how to be pastors, how to conduct themselves, how to behave, what is the characteristics of both pastors and elders. So it's all laid out here. It's actually really helpful. But Timothy, First and Second Timothy, are also prison epistles, and we believe that this is his last letter, this is his last writing, and that there is a shift in the tone, even from 1 Timothy to 2 Timothy. 1 Timothy was very, you know, encouraging, it was like all of his other typical letters, but 2 Timothy, like, it seems a little more serious, it's way more personal it's as if paul is writing this under an immense amount of pressure okay so let's do this fun fact before i read this so uh do you guys see the movie yet you guys haven't seen it yet Ah, all right bad class go see the movie you're probably gonna have to wait until it comes out in video but that's okay um in the video they show paul in prison and it doesn't look like it's the Mamertine prison because it looks like it's kinda nice. Like he's got a bed, right? And he's got a table. And he can have company. It's big enough for him to have company. So we're not quite sure if that's accurate. And Luke at the very end, this is where there's some uh, poetic licensing or artistic license in it. Luke at the end says, you know what? I want to give Paul some uh, respect and I'm, I don't know why. I don't This is probably the worst part of the whole movie. So I'm just let you in. He's like, I'm going. Basically, I'm going to fudge my writings and say that Paul was under house arrest. Like what? Okay. So if you if you if you read the epistles and if you read the the book of Acts, uh, Acts tells us that Paul is under house arrest. It's uh, our equivalent of having the ankle bracelet, right? He's actually rented a house. He's able to do ministry. He's able to invite people over to his house. He's got a guard so he can't run away, but he's able to live life just like anybody else. And we don't know, like scholars, they're in major disagreement of what's going on, but we think, some, Like well we think, I think that there was probably two prison internments in Rome. One where he was under house arrest, and two when he was in the actual Mamertine prison. And so the idea is, is that 1 Timothy, and maybe Titus, was written while he was under house arrest. Maybe some of the other epistles in the letters were written while he was under house arrest. But Titus definitely seems to be a little heavier because it's his swan song. And so we think that that might have been written under the Mammothing prison when he was actually in chains. Because he says things like this, while I was in chains, while I am locked up, this is what's going on. Okay. We also think, well, okay, here's where we get into conspiracy theories. We think that maybe in this two-year to four-year period, like he might have got himself to Spain. Some people think that he might even got to Great Britain because by the time they showed up to Great Britain, there were already Christians there. So anyway, we don't know, but it's fun to think about. All right, chapter 2, verse 1. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and all these things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses and trust to be reliable. Trust and trust to reliable men who are to be qualified to teach others. Okay, ready? Endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one is serving. A soldier gets a uh, gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. Similarly, if anyone compels as an a, excuse me, if anybody competes as an athlete, he does not receive the victor's crown unless he completes competes according to the rules. The hard-working farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I am saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all this. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from uh, David. This is my gospel, for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. So do you see, this is why we think he's not under house arrest. But God's word is not chained. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. He is trustworthy, saying, if we die with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we dis disown him he will also disown us if we are faithless he will also remain faithful for he cannot disown himself keep reminding them of these things warn them before god against quarreling about words it is not of any value and only ruins will come to those who listen Do your best to present yourselves to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are, and then you name some people. How would you like to be those guys? Get named for all eternity for spreading gangrene for running your mouth too much. Who have wandered away from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place and they destroy the faith of some. So basically what I want to close with is this. Paul's mindset never changes. Years and years before he wrote this, he was saying... We're in a competition here. Like I am going to receive the prize. I there we don't you know, you know this we don't wage war as the world does. No, but this is a, there is something to contend for. There is a crown of victory to receive. Keep on running. He he will eventually say run the good race in this book he says i have ran this good race i have finished the race and actually says you need to run to win and this isn't about everyday life this is about your spiritual life is in your spiritual life are you doing are you doing it to win like not to win materially not to win a spouse not to win socially But are you you engaging God's Holy Spirit to win that prize? What is that prize? I think what it is, is the, the ability to walk into his presence in confidence. By the grace of God, we have the ability to walk into his courts with confidence. And there is... I don't know, for lack of a better description, there is going to be a, a judgment on us, which is the judgment is actually a good thing. And I guess what the Lord will say is, how well did you run? Did you run and not give up? Were you, were you consistent in this faith? Did you encourage others? Okay, did you compete? Were you in the game? Were you fighting? Again, how, how, does this, how do you compete in church? There's a high level of, com- of competition that's actually healthy. Rock climbers have figured it out. High competitive people have figured it out. They actually, rock climbers actually want their competition to succeed. If you watch them, it's an amazing thing. Because what do they, they actually, are they actually competing against themselves? What do rock climbers actually compete against? They compete against the rock. So, even though they wanna get there first, it's the rock that they're trying to conquer. Even though like there's this competitive spirit, there's something about them that iron sharpens iron. In their heart of hearts, they don't want their competition to fall off the rock. In their heart of hearts, they want everybody to defeat that obstacle. They just wanna do it first. And I think that needs to be the condition and the attitude of our heart. There, there is a prize to be won. There is a prize to be won in your own spiritual life. Like there is, I guess you could choose the plateau spiritually. And you're like, and I've heard this. I've heard this language. Because, you know, some, my job is to encourage people. My job is to, it, it, is to, in some cases, to challenge people to rise up to a higher level. And this is the language that you hear. So, you know what, Pastor Josh? I'm, just, I'm okay where I'm at. And that's where, like, okay, I have to back off. Because you've already chosen to level off. So, no, level, no, no amount of, of discipleship is going to work. And we desperately need discipleship in our communities. I think it looks different for every single person, and it looks different for every demographic. Like the youth need a different form of discipleship than I need. They toilet papered my house last night. And frankly, it was a lousy job. And I need to teach a discipleship class on how to properly toilet paper a house. because it is like, oh my God, i was like a little embarrassed. It's like, come on, you guys. Do a little, come on, you gotta do a little bit better job here. You're making me look bad in my neighborhood. Don't level off spiritually. You know you don't wanna level off in your career, right? You don't wanna level off in your personal life. You don't even wanna level off in your health. Let's not level off spiritually as an individual. I don't wanna level off as a church. You know, we're doing good, right? If one of my pastor friends asked me, say, so, how you doing? I'm doing good. What can you do to be better? If I just responded like, you know what, I'm okay. Like, we don't need to push the envelope here. I'm not there now. Like, as a church, I want to push the envelope. What does that mean? Does that mean we're going to get weird? No, it doesn't mean we're going to get weird. It means that we are going to love each other and love our community better. And we're going to think of strategic apostolic ways to reach that out there and if they don't want to hear the message that's fine but we need to we need to open up and be more I don't know this sounds you know whatever this word is terrible mean maybe more inclusive whatever no we need to advance the kingdom of heaven here and I'm gonna encourage you to do it who so don't just do it for yourself but as a, as a, as a family as a church family I want, to, I want you to put your minds to it. What can we do to make Granite Creek a better church? A big, I don't want to say bigger, because bigger is not necessarily better. But an influential church, how do we influence this community? How can I actually take a part in influencing this community? You want to make a difference? I want to make a difference. I want to make a difference in my own personal life. I want to be able to stand before God and say, I ran the race but I also want Granite Creek to stand before Jesus and say, Granite Creek ran the race. And I think this is going to be a bit of a stretch for us in the new season that we're in. There's a lot of opportunity. So what you guys might not know as church attenders is that there's a lot of opportunity on the plate for our church. There's a lot of strategic openings that are very curious. There's a lot of an incredible amount of road bumps. It seems to be that there's an incredible amount of spiritual warfare, even though I don't like to give the enemy of God any credit. But it seems unusual right now. It seems unusual for our congregation, for individuals within the congregation, and it seems unusual for the church itself. So, what's the response to hardship? Huh? What was Paul's response to hardship? Did he fold or did he double down? He doubled down. So I am continuing this. The, we need to do this for a church and we need to do it as an individual. I'm going after what God, God's vision is for me personally. And I'm going after what I believe that God's vision is for us as a church corporately. It's going to be really easy for me to get sucked into all the other drama. Trust me, I'm there. But continually, God, where are you leading us as a church? God, what vision do you have for us? What doors are you opening? What doors uh, should we go through? And so we need your prayers, church. We really do. There's a lot of things that are shifting. There's a lot of things that that are on the table. There's so much opportunity, it's ridiculous. We get to be a part of something important, and I want to encourage you to put your minds to it and pray about it. And we're going to be baptizing some 15 people uh, after second service. Uh, I think we uh, we did about two baptisms last year. And I'm excited about each and every one of them. We're going to celebrate each and every one of them. But there's a vision that's going to be, it could be hundreds and hundreds someday. Like, we know Jesus, but there's an entire community that doesn't. There's an entire generation that have never, they've never been to Sunday school. They've never seen the flannel board Jesus. Jesus. They don't have. They don't have that. In, they don't have that knowledge. They've never been. It's like everybody is either you've got all this knowledge about God and the Bible or you got nothing. So how much knowledge do you have about the Lord? Do you know that that's enough to tell somebody else that the, the information and the knowledge that you have is enough to teach Sunday school? It's enough. It's adequate. You've got all the tools that you need. In addition to having all the tools, you've got God himself living inside of you. You've got the Holy Spirit living deep down inside of you. I don't know about you guys, but I want to get to know the guy that's living inside of me a little bit better. I think once we know him better, man, the doors are just going to continue to open up. All right, if I get the band to come to the front, you guys doing good? All right, um, let me get the, the, the ushers to come up as well. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for vision. We thank you for a divine vision and a divine plan. And God, right now, we just ask for a divine drive. God, we want Paul's mantle. We want Paul's drive, his, his, his competitive spirit that says, we're not going to settle for the status quo in our lives, and we're not going to settle for the status quo in our church. There there is a drive. There is a race that we're running. Paul says to the Galatians, he says, oh, you foolish Galatians. Who cut in on you? Who tripped you up on your race? God, we don't want to be that people. We don't want to be that church. We want to be this church that runs hard and runs well, does not get tired in doing good. So God, right now, we just pray that you just encourage us this morning. You give us this inner strength, this vision for the end to finish well. God, I pray right now that you just give us a hope of glory right now too. And then I pray that there would just also be with even even among our attenders and our visitors and our people that have been here forever, our our members, we don't have formal membership, but you're either family or you're not. Um, I pray that there would just be an opening of the mind to where they can actually not only see a vision for themselves, but they can also see a vision for this church. God, we thank you so much for blessing us with an incredible asset of this location. God, we thank you that we are, we've got such a gem right now. And I pray that we will be good stewards of what you've given us. That we can use and leverage this sacred land, this, this hallowed property, that we could leverage it to reach the kingdom, or to advance the kingdom and to reach a lost world. And we can do it in a strategic way. So right now, I just pray that you to give specific vision to our people on how do we, how do we leverage this place to reach a community. God, I pray that you just continue to open doors that need to be opened. And I pray that you continue to close doors that need to be closed. So what are those, Lord, personally and corporately? God, I pray right now for a divine wisdom. A wisdom that says, I know and I am confident on how to make the right choice. So God, we just pray that for each and every person here. I pray also that you just bless the offering as we return to you what is yours. I pray that it just be an incredible blessing to this community and beyond. pray this in your name. Amen.